Loving Heavenly Father, we come to your presence with a thankful heart, and we do thank you for the service thus far, the singing and rejoicing in the salvation that we have and the blessings that thou hast bestowed upon your people. I ask, Heavenly Father, that you will help me today to be a blessing to someone. My major objective is to honor you, but I also want to be a blessing and a help to people that are here in the congregation. I ask that thou would help us, Lord. Give us anointing. Holy Spirit, I know you're here, but talk to me, talk to the people. Speak to my heart that I might be able to speak to them. I ask the Holy Spirit for that, that divine power makes the preaching of the Word of God more than a, a lecture or a lesson, but it makes it something, Father, that is transforming, changing people's lives. And I ask, Father of Heaven, that you bless this service. I don't know the need here, but you do. So help me to say what is needed, something, Heavenly Father, that uh, help me to omit what I ought to, to, to say what I ought to. I ask in Jesus' name, and to you I will give all the glory, and amen. You may be seated. I certainly thank God that Jesus died for our sins. Uh, as Paul said in one place, that he died for me. And when, when you and I can uh, put that term, not only Jesus died for the world, but Jesus died for me. And in a personal way and accepted by faith, I thank God for the death of Jesus. You know, <clears throat> altogether that he died, but it's how. If he would have died of cancer, it would have been different. If he would have died of old age, it would have been different. If he had died by a mere accident, it would have been different. But he had his life taken from him. And he was in his early 30s, around 30 years of age, in the prime of life. He was executed. He was put to death as a criminal. And in that death, my friend, is for all of us, and especially for those that accept it uh, by faith and trust in it and put their confidence, as I've often said, all of my eggs are in one basket. I, my hope of heaven is in just one thing, and that is Jesus Christ. His death on the cross of Calvary and his uh, giving of himself so that I am given. But I thank God for the death of Jesus. If you have your Bibles, I'm going our lesson in 2 Timothy, the third. But very shortly, I'm going to be going to James, the first chapter. But uh, I'll begin reading here in... 2 Timothy, chapter, and the first verse. This know also, that in the last days perilous times shall come. 
For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, <coughs> fierce, and despisers of those traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Having a this but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Here in this passage of scripture, Paul is giving us the characteristics of a people. He tells us that this group of people are going to be characterized by these various things, and I'm not going to take time to go into each and every one. I, I just want to mention the fact that he's not talking about the world here, as we know the world. Uh, the ungodly, the people that have never known God, never professed to know God. Uh, e even though it's true, it's true that they are characterized. I mean, that's true, but that's not his point. That's not what he is saying here. That in the last days, Perilous times. And the word perilous here means dangerous. In fact, the other translations today say dangerous times. And the thing that makes it dangerous is not so much that people are living uh, by these things. You know, the world is often characterized by some of these things that are listed here. That's nothing new. But the thing that Paul pointing out that makes it dangerous is that to be professing Christians who are characterized these things. It's going to be people who are uh, having a form of godliness. He's talking about people here, my friend, that have a form of godliness and uh, professing Christians, and but they're denying the power of godliness. You know, the power to track they, they simply have the form of it. And, and we have much of that today. And these verses are describing the characteristics of a person who loves themselves extremely. It said, perilous time, dangerous. And the reason why it's so dangerous, we expect the world to do that. We expect the world to live like this. But the thing that makes it so dangerous is that when Christians begin to live like this and are characterized by these things, the nominal church today unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable to me, but yet it certainly is known by God. And the Apostle Paul here was about people having the form of godliness, but not having the power of godliness. And, I mean, listen to me. He's describing characteristics of a person who loves himself supremely. He said, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's the heart of the problem. And then all of these other that he lists are things that flow out of that. Things that uh, are because people 
supremely love themselves. In fact, that's the heart of sin. That's the essence of sin, is loving yourself more than you love God, loving yourself more than you love other people. It's loving yourself supremely. That's the very essence of sin. It's the heart of it. It's the thing, my friend, that makes sin what it is. And, uh, and actually, the love of yourself supremely is in contradiction to the two greatest commandments. The greatest commandment is God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And loving yourself supremely is in direct conflict with that. Second is likened unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And that's to love them equally. But when you love yourself supremely, you're in violation of the two greatest commandments. And from those two commandments, all the law of God, those are the, they're the root commandments. They're, they're the heart of it. All the other commandments, like don't steal, don't lie, and all of that, that that's flowing out of, uh, loving others as yourself, and then also the other sins that honoring God and or dishonoring God. But loving yourself supremely is the essence of sin. It's loving yourself first. first. Now you're not supposed to put for yourself. I've heard preachers say that, but uh, this, this may upset some of you. But we're not to put others before ourselves, but we are to love them as our equal love. We're to put their interests and, and their concerns of equal value to all interests and concerns and what we desire in life. Well, I'm digressing here, but I tend to say that much, but... People love themselves supremely. And because of that, these characteristics uh, come out of that essence of sin, out of that loving themselves supremely. Now, I intend to focus on one of these characteristics this morning. Not, not all of them, but just one. That is being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. In fact, that's what I titled my lesson, Lovers of Pleasure More Than Lovers of God. We have a problem with pleasure-seeking people today. People put their pleasure, they put their things that they enjoy ahead of the service of God, ahead of their, their uh, well, their commitment to the Lord. And we have a real big problem with pleasure-seeking people today, believe me. And Paul, in telling us, my friend, that uh, people were going to be characterized by these things. There is an attraction in fleshly pleasure. There's something in fleshly pleasure that is attractive. It, it's, it's alluring. It, it, it's something, my friend, that has a drawing power on all of us. All of us have to deal with pleasure. And there's an attraction in that. That's why I said people love pleasure more 
they love God. Someone said, what is pleasure? Well, pleasure is a word that comes from the idea to please. Uh, pleasure, I looked it up, but a word means to please. And pleasure is an uh, agreeable sensation or emotion. Something we feel. Pleasure is something, my friend, that is emotional. It's something, my friend, uh, it's a sensation, an emotion. It's or happiness produced by enjoyment of human emotions. It's excitement or produced by the enjoyment or the expectation of enjoyment of something that we like to do. There's something very enticing. There's something, my friend, very powerful about that. There's something very powerful about pleasure. It's exciting. It's, it's enticing. It's uh, desirable. And it's something, my friend, that flows from our human passions. Now, if it, if, it, if it wasn't so powerful, it would draw people away from God. If it was just something that, well, it's, it's there, but it's not really strong. But it's something that's so enticing and so desirable and deceptive as far as that's concerned that people are drawn away by it. He said lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. It means that, that people are drawn from, from God because of pleasure. And for something to be able, you know, when you know the Lord, you love the Lord, and you're walking in His grace, and you've experienced His forgiveness, for something to draw away from that life and to draw you away from those blessings and benefits be very strong. It, it can't be something, my friend, just like uh, I've said this, I'm never, I never was tempted to drink alcohol. I mean, I mean, there's no temptation. My father was an alcoholic, and I hated alcohol before I was saved because of what it done to my family. It brought divorce. It brought heartache in many cases. It brought poverty. Uh, and so alcohol is temptation. I mean, the devil can talk to me and, and try to tell. It's no temptation. None at all. The same way with smoking. I never smoked. Even before I saved, I always had the idea. Of course, it's proved scientifically now. But I always had the idea that somehow hurt your health, uh, stunted your growth. Back then, I was a little skinny teenage person, and I didn't want my growth stunted, you know? And there's no temptation there. But people that have been bound by those things find temptation. And what I'm talking about, my friend, pleasure being a strong temptation because that there's something 
my friend, enticing and desirable about it. And I, I want to go to James in the first chapter of the book of James and verse 12 through 15. It is a man that endureth temptation. Stop long enough to say throughout our Christian life, we are going to have to endure temptation. Enduring something is putting up with it. Now, like I said, I'm not tempted by alcohol, so temptation at all. I mean, I just, uh, if somebody offered me a drink, is, there's no problem in saying no. I'm at none at all. But there are other temptations. All of us have temptations. And we have to endure them. They're not going to go away. All the temptations that come in my life are alcohol. I mean, some of them, my friend, have a drawing power. Some of them, some of them have something that is seducing about it and, and trying to draw me away from God. And James is saying here that blessed is the man that endures temptation he's tried. So there's enduring of temptation. And the blessing that we receive, he shall receive the crown of life is an expression meaning eternal life which the Lord has to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. God's not the tempter. We do have a tempter though. I mean there is a living real devil that has the ability to excite temptation in every one of us. Let no man say when he is tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man, how is a person tempted? Here he answers that. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lusts and enticed. And when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Here Paul, is, uh, James I should say, is saying that we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own lust. About that momentarily. We're enticed. We're, uh, we're, there's something alluring. It's like, it's like a fish and worm to a fish. There's something alluring about that. There's something that, that causes that fish, well, it's hunger, actually, but he grabs a hold of that worm, and there's a hook in it, and he's hooked. Well, temptation is that way. It's, it's something that's alluring. It's something that's enticing. It's something that you have an urge to do, it wouldn't be no temptation. It's something you have an urge to do, or there wouldn't be any temptation. We do not live without urges to do wrong. What we live is enduring that temptation and overcoming it and saying no to it by the grace of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit. But there wouldn't be any temptation if there was no alluring in it, if there was no enticement in it. I've got to go on. Every man's drawn away, and he means he's drawn away from God by his own lust and entice. And when lust hath conceived, the desire conceives when the will embraces it. 
whether internally or externally, when the will embraces it, as long as it's just an urge, as long as it's just emotional, as long as it's just a feeling, as long as it's just a sensation, there is no sin. Sin begins when the will embraces it. When the will says yes to it, whether internally or externally, when your heart embraces that, that brings forth sin. That's when sin is born. And sin, when it's finished, it brings forth death, meaning eternal death in a lost world. What draws people away from God? James answers, his own lust or desires. Every man's tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust or enticed. Another translation says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The word lust here that's translated lust is when he's drawn away of his own lust. That, that Greek word that's translated there appears as a noun 30, 38 times in the New Testament, and it appears in a verbal form 16 times. So it's a word that is used uh, throughout the scriptures, especially in the New Testament, because that's uh, that was written in Greek, as most of you already know. But the word refers to an emotional passion, urge, impulse, or craving. What it is referring to is something emotional, something that a sensation, an excitement, something that you feel, a passion, an urge, uh, impulse. And it means, to, uh, the basic word means to desire something earnestly or to long for something or to covet after something. Now, normally, in these texts where the, where the word lust appears, it's a desire that is detrimental to a life of holiness. But it may also be used in a positive sense. And uh, one, one, uh, I'll just give an example. And if you, have if you have the ability to reference Greek, you'll see that I'm telling you the truth. If you don't, you have to take my word for it. But where Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, I greatly desire to eat this supper with you. That expression, greatly desired, is exactly, exactly the same word translated lust here. But the context shows that it's, it's, it's in a good sense. He, Jesus, and what I'm trying to help you see is that the word lust is referring to a strong desire. That's what it's referring to. When Jesus said, I long to eat, he had a desire to eat that supper because he had several things that he wanted to tell to them. He instituted the Lord's Supper, feet washing. He told them many things about the Holy Spirit, and you can read that in the Gospels. But Jesus wanted that time at the Last Supper to talk to his disciples and to give them what we might call his final words of instruction to them. But he, 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 he desired it earnestly. He longed for it. And that's what the word lust has a meaning. 
James said that we are lured and enticed into sin by our human passions, urges, or desires. The problem that we face as Christians in living without sin and having victory, the problem we face is, well, we could call it temptation, but it's a sense of pleasure that we get from gratifying our desires. This sense of pleasure, this excitement, this agreeable sensation, it, uh, that's what, that sense of pleasure is, is a big problem. Amen? Well, amen. Human passions, inflation desires, my friend, are morally neutral. They're neither righteous nor sinful in and of themselves. It's how you yield to them. There is a lawful gratification. I'll get to that momentarily. But there's a lawful gratification of every human passion. But to go beyond the law of God, the law of God puts a boundary on our passions. The law of God puts a boundary how far we can go in gratifying our fleshly desires. Just take, for instance, uh, marriage. The Bible teaches us, my friend, that, well, I think we already know, but one of the human passions is a sexual drive. God has provided for that to be satisfied in lawful marriage. In fact, he tells us in the Old Testament to, to uh, how, how does he word that? if I can think of it, uh, to ravish yourself in the love of your wife. Let her breath satisfy thee. I mean, those are, those are passages. In the New Testament, he said, the marriage bed is undefiled. And there is a lawful gratification of our human desire. But there's a boundary. God's law forbids my friend, finding gratification of that human desire outside the bounds of lawful marriage. Premarital relationships, adultery, relationships after you are married. That's going beyond. That's satisfying that desire outside the boundary of God. And that's what sin is. Sin, my friend, is yielding to our human passions and desires in a way, my friend, that is forbidden by God. Right? I, I said I'd, I'd get into that a little bit later on. But I wanted to mention it so that you understand what I'm saying here. And that is that the human passions in and of themselves, are, they're morally neutral. They're neither right nor wrong. They're neither sinful or righteous in and of themselves. It's how you satisfy them. It's how you satisfy them. Actually, God has made many provisions, my friend, to satisfy the various fleshly desires and passions that you and I have. Gratifying the desire to please ourselves brings an experience of pleasure. And as long as it's done within the boundary of God's law, it is right. It is righteous. It is a Something that is right is not something wrong. 
to gratify your human passions and desire within the boundary of God's law. I can tell by the look on your face you're not quite getting what I'm saying. God, one of the human, another human passion is a desire to acquire things. That's not righteous or wicked in and of itself, but it's how you do that. If to acquire for your things you lie and cheat and mistreat others, steal, then it's wrong. But if you work hard, and my friend, uh, labor for it and pay for it, then to acquire things, it's not wrong. Amen? I like what John Wesley, when he preached about money, he had three points. The first one was, make all you can. And, and I'll not go into it, but he was saying, make all you can by honest labor and treating people right and, and living honestly and justly and fairly. And then save all you can. And that's, that's by being careful and wise and not just spending it foolishly and just on things that are of no value. And the third thing was give all you can. Pretty good advice, I'd say. And even as, as I said, pleasing of ourself and experiencing pleasure within the bounds of God's law is right. Yet at the same time, it is this pleasing of ourself and experiencing pleasure from these desires that almost all sin and disobedience to God flows. The desire to find pleasure can so easily lead people into sinful activity that the human passions themselves are commonly considered to be sinful. I mean, you know that. You've heard enough preaching. You've heard enough people talk. Sometimes, my friend, the human passions themselves are considered to be sinful. There are many passages in the Bible that warns Christians, and I'm just... Uh, going to uh, refer to those that's in the New Testament. But there's many passages that warn Christians uh, not to follow the desires of the flesh and uh, warns them about the dangers of following the desires of the flesh. Let me read you just a few of them. In Titus, the third chapter and the third verse, for we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving divers' lusts and pleasures. And that Paul said that in the context of describing Christians' former life in sin. Serving divers' lusts, and the word divers means different, lusts and pleasures. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, 22nd verse, that you put off concerning the former conversation, and the word conversation here means the manner of life, that you put off concerning the former conversation or manner of life of the old man, or he means the old person you once were, which is corrupt according to the according to deceitful lust. He's talking there of the old person, the old self that you once were, 
and corrupt according to deceitful lust. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. This is 1 Peter 2.11. I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Galatians 5.24. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. In Colossians 3.5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Romans eleven fourteen, And put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. There's a danger, a real danger. In fact, these passages, and this is just a sample of passages, but many passages warn Christians about my friend seeking pleasure in the wrong kind of way. Uh, and that's, that's why Paul was saying in our text in Timothy that the reason why it would be so dangerous that people become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Right. And uh, there may have been other times in history where that's true, but it's true again in our day and time. Somebody may ask the question, is the desire to seek pleasure sinful in and of itself? Not necessarily. It's only when it becomes the co supreme controlling desire of your life. Uh, and by that I mean when self-pleasing comes before loving God and others. Then it's sinful. To condemn all self-interest, and seeking to benefit yourself as sin would be misleading to people. And you could falsely condemn them if you condemned all self-interest and seeking to benefit yourself as sin. It would be misleading to believe that you must abandon, my friend, all desire for your own pleasure or profit. That's misleading. <laughs> but sometimes it's done or attempted to be done. I one time asked a fellow, I was, I was in church, and this was a Sunday school teacher, and he made the statement that everything that you do just because you want to is sin. And so I asked him, I said, I got a question. I said, I like Dairy Queen uh, blizzards. There's only one I like. Now, I limit myself to either one or two a year. I, I don't go out every week. But I like them. And I told him, I said, I limit myself to one or two a year. And I said, and, and I buy it just because I like it. And I said, is that sin? Boy, he was, he was on the spot, to tell you the truth. He, he hum-hauled around, finally said, no, it's not. But sometimes we can leave the impression, friend, that all self-pleasing is sin. It's not. 
It's whenever self-pleasing comes before loving God and others. It's when we please ourselves in violation of God's law and the principles of God's word. That's when it's sin. That's when it's sin. Now, self-interest. Like I said, I've heard preacher after preacher after say, you got to put people before yourself. But that's not what the scripture said. It said, love them as yourself. Put their, their interests their, uh, on equal value to yours. But that doesn't mean that you, it's God and their, them and then you at the bottom. It's God and then you and others on the same plane. There are times, my friend, when self-interest trumps helping others. When I wake up in the morning, the uh, biggest task I got throughout the day is keeping an, an old man alive. <laughs> and that's myself. I've got all kinds of things I have to do just to stay alive. And, and if someone would, their need would come to the place where I couldn't take care of myself. I've often said, and one of the mottos I've had, if you don't take care of yourself, then you won't be able to take care of anything. Not all self-interest. God does not require us to give away all our money. <laughs> right? Why? Why do I have, I have a savings and I accumulate over a, a long period of time? And by, by being careful how I bought things. I never bought a new car. I never bought a lot of other things. And I don't know, Sister Yoder's had very, very few store-bought dresses. She's made most of them or went to a thrift store and bought. We, got, we, li we happen to live in Amish country, and you can go there and you can get clothing. Since she takes it and, and redoes it. But I have accumulated a savings. I accumulated that to help take care of us in our old age. Now, that's self-interest. That is self-interest. But the Bible teaches us to take care of ourselves. In fact, he said if a person don't take care of his own, he's worse than an infidel. Right? I mean, hey, I know that this is upsetting your apple cart, but what I'm telling you is true. It's when we violate God's law, my friend, in pleasing ourselves. But to condemn all self-interest in seeking to benefit yourself as sin would be misleading. I pray for wisdom in, in our decisions. I pray for God. I, that's a prayer of mine every day, every day. And that's no exaggeration. That's no exaggeration. 
I pray for wisdom. I pray for wisdom in, in, in what I do and, and purchases and all kinds of things. And again, I say, my friend, that if we condemned all self-interest and seeking to benefit ourselves as sin, then we'd be misleading folks. Sin is committed. Listen to me. Sin is committed when we refuse to conform to God's moral law. And instead, we seek to please ourselves in spite of God's law. The desire to please yourself in seeking pleasure from human passions very often leads to disobedience to God's commandments. The desire to please yourself can so easily lead people into disobedience that it's commonly believed that the desire itself is the essence of sin. But the desire to please yourself is not sinful in and of itself. It's when we gratify that in a way that is forbidden by God. Let me, let me if I can, describe a little bit more in detail what I'm trying to tell you here. We have a problem, my friend, with our passions and their pleasure. As Christians, we have a problem. Pleasure is a problem for us. It's, it's the pleasure is the power in the temptation. It's, it's the thing that gives the temptation its pull. It's pleasure. God has created us with various passions so that we can enjoy life. I'm glad we have desires, and I'm glad that God has, has, uh, has provided for our, our the human passions and desires to be gratified and satisfied in a lawful way. Someone said, what do you mean? Well, things like hunger for food. Longing for human fellowship, the desire to acquire things, the sexual drive, the desire to succeed. All of those things, my friend, are, are human passions. They're, they're things that are part of us. They're things that are basic to our nature. They're things that make us human. They're things, my friend, take hun hunger for food. I'm going to tell you... <clears throat> That's a good desire. Now, it can cause you problems. And, and the Bible teaches that uh, over-indulge in, in, in an extent, it can lead to gluttony. But the desire for food is a good thing. You lose your appetite, you're dead. Unless they feed you uh, artificially. But... You can't live without an appetite. You can't eat, I should say, without an appetite. And if you don't eat, you can't live. But the basic desire, and I, I know that's, that's just fundamental. The longing for human fellowship. Wanting to be accepted. 
wanting to be a part of the group. In fact, that, that human passion is what sometimes leads young people into the wrong group. They get, they get tied up with the wrong kind of other young people, and what they're looking for is acceptance. And they don't find it at home, and so they turn to other things, other groups. It's, it's a longing desire for human fellowship. That, but there's something wonderful about it. <laughs> we call it fellowship. I'm glad for the desire. I'm glad that being a Christian is not a, the ride of a lone ranger. I'm glad for God's people. I'm glad for the church and so on. Amen. I've already mentioned the sexual drive and I won't go over that. And I've also mentioned the desire to acquire things, the desire. If, if you didn't have the desire to succeed, you just everybody go on welfare. And then there'd be nobody take care of us. We have a desire to succeed. We have a desire to acquire things. And as long as it's within the boundaries of God's law, we don't lie, cheat, or steal, or, or other things. Right? We don't take advantage of people that's in a hard place. You heard me say this before, but <clears throat> some people drive a hard bargain. And in the space, when they find somebody, let, let's say there's a brother in the congregation that's lost his job and he's got a good car and he can't pay for it. And you know he's got his back against the wall and, and he's, he, if he don't find any help, he's going to have to file for bankruptcy. If you take and Jew that brother, that's kind of a racial experience. But if you try to bargain him down to the lowest price possible, you don't love him as you love yourself. You're in violation of God's law, right? Taking advantage of people is a violation of God's law. Taking advantage of the generosity of people. You know, there's some folks very generous. I mean, they give you lots of things. And sometimes when people find that out, they manipulate them. Amen? And those are in violations. And again, all of these things are coming, my friend, from the finding pleasure in human passions and desires in violation of God's law. These human passions, when they're gratified, result in a sense of pleasure. And I and it just remind you once again, I've repeated it, but there's a lawful gratification of these desires within the boundaries of God's law. But there's an unlawful gratification of these passions, and it's the heart of sin. And as I've said over and over, the unlawful gratification is going beyond the boundary of God's law. The sense of pleasure is the source of being deceived by sin. Now listen to me. This sense of pleasure deceives people. Deceives them. Well, when they gratify these passions, 
It seems like a good thing to most people because it makes them happy. <laughs> and something that makes you happy ought to be good, right? I mean, that's, I'm talking about the general common way that people think. They, they, they believe it's a good thing because of the enjoyment that it brings to them. And in this way, people are deceived into believing that sin's okay and something good. In fact, that's exactly what happened to Eve in the garden. <laughs> she was deceived. She did not walk into that sin with her eyes wide open. She was deceived into believing that she was doing something good. The Bible says she was deceived by Satan. Satan told her it's good, it's something good to look at, something that tasted good, something good for you, something to bring you pleasure. And she was deceived the same way. The deception of sin comes from the pleasure we receive. And it causes us to believe that sin is not a, a bad thing, but a good thing. It seems so natural to seek happiness from the pleasures of the flesh that to most people, it seems like the best way to live. How does the majority of the world live? Well, they live in the pleasures of the flesh. <laughs> Why do they do that? Because they think it's the best way to live. It brings them happiness. It brings them pleasure. It's so natural, I say again, that People seem to believe it's the best way. Seeking pleasure is not necessarily morally wrong in of itself. I've already said that. It's only when pleasure is sought in disobedience to God outside of his law that it's wrong. Now, I've said that about 20 times. But I want you to get it. Listen. The problem, listen now. The problem is not a love of sin but the love of self-seeking pleasure. Someone said, what do you mean? People's not, they're not doing it, just they don't wake up in the morning and say, I, I, I want to do some sin. No, they wake up and say, I want to find some happiness. I want to find some pleasure. And I say again, the delight of the pleasure, my friend, is the enjoyment that we experience. Now, the people sometimes say that uh, I love sin, you know, but that's true in one sense, but that's not the heart of the problem. The heart of the problem is that they've developed a love for the pleasure, not sin per se. It's not sin that they're seeking. They, if you, I hope you, I'm making myself clear. It's not sin they're seeking, but it's pleasure, even though the pleasure is sin. They're bound by the pleasure. Oftentimes people don't even consider it 
sin because they enjoy it so much. I remember, I'm going to digress just a minute and then finish, but I, I, uh, my family's not a, when I was growing up, my mom and dad, I don't ever remember a time they took us to church, not one time. I grew up in a godless home. My father was an alcoholic, and, which led to divorce, and we, I, I lived with grandparents sometimes on one side, my mother's side, sometimes on the other. And I started going to church, and I didn't know, just to be honest with you, the rural community in Kentucky where I lived at that time, uh, church was the social event of the community. And I started going because that's where the girls were. I mean, really, that's why I started going. And we would, we would ask, uh, after church, we'd ask some, we'd go to a father and ask, can I walk your daughter home? And to us, it's a big deal. But I started going, and I started listening to the preaching. And the preacher started telling me that most of the things that I found pleasure in was wrong. And that if I become a Christian, I was going to have to give them up. And then on the other hand, he said that living a Christian life was a happy and a, a wonderful thing. And I'll tell you, I, I sat there and I said to myself, that preacher's lying to me. How could a Christian life be a happy life if I have to give up most of the things that make me happy. I, I, I'm, this is not a story. It's, it's what I really thought. He's lying to me, and that's what I'm trying to help you see. And sometimes this love of pleasure deceives people to the point that they don't consider it sin or, or, or that wrong. How could it be so wrong if it so enjoyable. Most people enjoy the pleasures of sin while at the same time escaping the serious consequences of sin. You know, people who drive under the influence of alcohol don't kill somebody very often. Now, it does happen. It does happen. And, you know, us preachers can warn people about, you know, drink. But most folks... Most people who drive under, they don't kill nobody. They're enjoying the pleasure without suffering the consequences. Not all premarital sexual relationships result in an unwanted pregnancy. They, they want the pleasure without the consequence. And because they have my friend, in, well, they enjoy the pleasure and not and they escape the consequence. They don't think it's so bad. People that steal by shoplifting, you know, they're not very often arrested or even charged. In fact, in our day and time, sometimes 
People just grab a bag and go down the aisle and grab things and run out the store. No consequence or very little, at least in certain situations. When people can enjoy the pleasures of sin without escaping the serious consequences, sin does not look like such a terrible thing to them. Actually, it looks like a good thing because of its enjoyment. They really like it. They really do enjoy it. It is denying self-seeking pleasure, my friend, that makes a Christian life seem difficult to most people. Self-denial is not easy. Self-denial is hard. The hardest person you ever find to say no to is yourself. Self-denial is telling yourself no when you're urged, when you're uh, enticed to do something, my friend, that would bring you pleasure. It's saying no to yourself. No. That, that's not an easy thing. And because of that, people look at a Christian life as, as something that's not attractive, something that's not desirable. That's why we ought to not talk. Now, it's, it's okay to talk once in a while about some of the hard struggles you have. But if that's all we talk about, people are going to get the wrong idea of what living a Christian life is. We ought to tell them a little bit about the joy, the blessings, the satisfaction, the grace, the empowering. Amen? Sin enslaves people through repeated experiences of pleasure. As people repeat the gratification in a sinful way, that repetition of gratification and a sense of pleasure is what enslaves people. So that a man or a woman can become a slave, a slave to sin, bound by sin, bound by sin. And by that I mean they can't escape in and of themselves. It's these repeated experiences of pleasure that enslaves people in sinful activity. God's law and commandments, listen to me, God's law and commandments by themselves with their demands cannot break the power of pleasure of gratified human passions. Just telling people not to do it, that they shouldn't do it, that in and of itself, just the demands of the commandments is not enough. It takes something beyond that. And in brief words, it, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit. It takes my friend, I tell you, the day I got saved, I did not believe that I could overcome certain sins. 
In fact, the reason why I believe that is because when I came under conviction, I decided, when, when I found out through the preaching that me and God was on opposite sides and that God considered me his enemy, that troubled me. And that God, God hated the way I lived so much that he was going to send me away to a place called hell. When that, when that dawned on me, it troubled me. I'm telling you, it troubled me greatly. And so what I decided to do, I'm going to quit some of these things. I, these things that are displeasing to God, I'm going to quit them so that you know, God will look on me more favorably. And so I, I started on a journey of self-improvement. Now, I did have a little success on some things, but other things I didn't. And, and I thought, I'm bound. Now, I, I never knew I was bound until I tried to get free. And that's the way it is with so many people. There are people, my friend, bound by sin, bound by the pleasures of sin. They don't know it. And the only way they'll ever know it is when they try to break free. <laughs> they try to get free from it. And, and then they find out, I can't. Not in and of myself, I can't. And that experience of trying and failing convinced me I, I couldn't live a Christian life. And, and even though I didn't believe I could, I couldn't live the way I was. I wanted peace with God. And I came and gave my heart to God, and it's only after I was saved that I found out that God can give us victory. And I'll not take time to go into to that. But Paul said this in Romans. This is the 8th chapter of Romans, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh. There's your victory. The reason why I'm moving that is casting a shadow on my notes. There is therefore now no condemnation to them. Why is there no condemnation? Because they're not sinning anymore. <laughs> and the reason they're not sinning is because they don't walk after the flesh anymore. The flesh of desire, this power has been broken. And they're walking after the Spirit. And the word walk means live. For the law, or the power of the Spirit, of life in Christ Jesus, hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. I want you to notice just a couple of things. First of all, it's the power of the Spirit that gives us freedom over sin and death. And it says here, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. Well, what couldn't the law do? 
The law could not, my friend, it did not have the power to produce the righteousness it demanded. You can command people, don't do this and give up that. We can, we can condemn the world and, my friend, lay the law down. But the law by itself, it reveals sin. But it doesn't, it's not what gives us victory over it. The, righteous, the thing that the law could not do is produce the righteousness that it demanded. And it tells us here, that the reason was it was weak through the flesh. Now, what did it mean by that? The law was weak through the flesh. The weakness of the flesh is the power of pleasure from human passions. What it means is that the power of pleasure is stronger than the motives of the moral law. The, mo the motives of God's law towards obedience are both positive and negative. On the positive side... The, the commandments say, do this and you shall live. Now, that, that's hope. That's positive. On the negative side, it said, disobey the commandment and you shall die. And that's fear. And so the law appeals to our hopes and fears. But that in and of itself is not enough. Now, God has provided for this problem of the power and fleshly passions and desires by giving us the gift of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he said here that <clears throat> those who walk after the flesh, I mean, yeah, walk not after the flesh, that's verse 1, but after the Spirit. For the law or the power of the Spirit of life hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the flesh. Jesus was a human being like you and me. And he showed that the power of God can overcome sin. And the fourth verse says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. The righteousness, that, that's that's. That's a standard of righteousness that the law demands. It's fulfilled in us because we do not walk after the flesh, but after the spirit. I covered a lot of ground here this morning, maybe some new ground for some of you. And some things you may not have understood. But we live in a time where people are bound by pleasures. It's unbelievable of how many people neglect the house of God for some pleasure. And they consider it legitimate. It may be legitimate, but it's still a pleasure that they put ahead of the service of God. You don't like that? It's okay truth. Amen. People, my friend, are bound by pleasures. You know why it's, why it's so powerful? It's because they enjoy it. <laughs> it's a pleasure. 
Now, if I haven't made that point, then I can't make it this morning. This is a real danger to all of us because pleasure, my friend, is a problem for all of us. We can overcome it, but it requires self-denial on our part and trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit on God's part. Why do you think that the vast majority of the Christian, those of us that believe you can live without committing sin are a minority. If you believe that you can live without committing known willful sin, in the Christian world, you're in a minority. Vast majority. My friend, believe that you sin more or less each day. And you, the, reason, the way that you're saved is not living with victory over sin, but living with constant forgiveness of sin. And when we try to get people to live without committing any sin, often, Pleasure stands in the way. Pleasure stands in the way. Loving Heavenly Father, I've tried to help in a little way to explain some of the struggles, difficulties that we have, not only dealing with an unsaved world, but dealing with a Christian world. Father, I don't know any other way than what I've done this morning to try to help people see that there is victory over sin. It's not by, it's not through the law and commandments, but it's through a living experience of walking with God and having the presence of the God in us through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, if there's somebody here that's bound by pleasure in some area of their life that is keeping them from being what you'd have them to be, I pray you'd bring them to a place of acknowledging that and repenting of it, turning away from it, and seeking your forgiveness. I pray, Heavenly Father, if there's some that have been confused and have been falsely accused because they found pleasure in certain things, but they found it in, in keeping your commandments, that you'd help them also, because we have a few like that among us too, Lord. I ask that thou would guide and direct us. We need, we need direction today, Lord. We need to know how to, to reach this, this world. Uh, sometimes quoting the Bible is not enough because we live in a time where, where over half the population don't even believe in God anymore. And don't believe, my friend, in 
in the Bible is the word of God. Even, even many professing Christians and don't believe that in the, the inspired word of God anymore. And I ask of you that thou would help us to know how to deal with this. And then, Father, the church is in a bad shape. They, they've lost their zeal. They've lost their, their joy. They've, they've uh, lost in a great extent, Father of heaven, things that were commonplace just a couple decades ago. We need you. And I ask that thou would help us, Father, in seeking thee, that Holy Spirit, talk to us and give us direction. I don't want to lean on our own understanding, but talk to us, Lord, and help us. Help us out of this mess. Help us out of this mess. Help us, Lord, to get back to a place where the services are powerful and moving and, and anointed by God in, in a definite way and, and touching the hearts of, of those that are there. I ask that thou will continue to bless this camp meeting. Those speakers that are yet to come and those that have spoken that the word of God will, will guide us, be a light in a, in a dark place. I pray, Father, that thou will just help us now and we will give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.